Grab your wetsuits and oxygen tanks. We are diving deeper into the science of meditation on this episode of Live Happy Now. The ancient Greeks defined happiness as the joy you feel moving towards your potential. To think about positive psychology, it's a science, and it's actually younger than the Internet, believe it or not. The reality is that social connection is, in the research, the greatest predictor we have of long-term happiness. You have some factors in your control that can promote the health and resilience and growth of your absolutely most important asset, which is your brain. And so it all comes down to understanding ourselves. There's a way for all of us to succeed, but, but it might take different things. We're all looking for the same thing, and that's a way to bring a little bit more joy to our day. Join us as we look at the many different paths that lead us to that happy place. This is Live Happy Now. Hello once again and greetings. Welcome to another edition of the Live Happy Now podcast. I'm your host, J.R. Houston. When we last left you, our science editor, Paula Phelps, was talking with John Kabat-Zinn, the internationally known scientist, writer, and meditation teacher who's bringing mindfulness to the mainstream. And they're going to dive a little bit deeper this time. They're going to continue their discussion as they explore the various studies that have been conducted regarding mindfulness. With mindfulness, we talk a lot about there are so many distractions today but have we? Did we used to be more mindful, and we got away from it, or is this something that's always well, been? Well, you know, I I don't know because I wasn't alive way back when. <laughs> but you could argue that, um, in a sense, mindfulness uh, was selected for an evolution, because if we weren't particularly mindful when we were living in hunting and gathering communities, as we did for most of the 200,000 years of the evolution of the human species, then we would have gotten eaten before we were able to reproduce and have children, so we would have died out as a species. So if we would have been walking around texting when the saber-toothed tiger was chasing us? (laughs) Yeah, the the tiger is chasing you uh, across the plains or whatever it is. You know, living in a hunting and gathering society, um, when the world was a lot less populated, you really had to be aware of every sound, every breath or, you know, movement of the air, because it could spell your doom. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that kind of awareness, I think, it developed and evolved in us in part for survival purposes, but it also allowed us to develop language and to cultivate a sense of deep interconnectedness. So these are all what I was referring to is the kind of interior resources of just virtue by virtue of being human that we're born with, but we don't develop them in school because instead of cultivating awareness, we're, we're taught only to cultivate thinking. And so we get very good at thinking and a lot of the thinking comes with emotions and uh, like uh, anxiety and depression and um, uh, anger and all sorts of things. And we don't realize that we have, uh, another capacity that can hold our thinking and our emotions in a kind of like, you could say, maternal embrace with a greater sense of clarity and wisdom, and therefore not be enslaved by our reactive emotions when we don't like what's happening in the outer world or the inner world. And that's something every single one of us has, but we're never taught that in school. And so mindfulness. Uh, has become so popular in a sense because it's based on almost 40 years now of of, uh, our experience in healthcare and in medicine training medical patients 
with all sorts of different chronic medical diseases and conditions, including chronic pain conditions and chronic anxiety and depression, uh, how to pour energy into what's right with them, let the rest of the medical center, hospital and so forth, take care of what's wrong with them and see what happens. And it turns out, and there's a lot of scientific and clinical evidence supporting this now, that what happens is that people uh, get better and wind up living their lives with much greater sense of, uh, of uh, agency and um, and freedom than when they feel like they're just at the mercy of whatever their clinical diagnosis is, whether it be heart disease, cancer, irritable bowel, you know, problems or anxiety, depression, uh, headaches, you name it, chronic pain conditions. And can you explain why? Because I think sometimes it's difficult to understand why being more aware, well, how is that going to help me feel exactly. better? How is that going <laughs> yeah. to, you know, can, can you explain how that works? paradoxical. Uh, frankly, only up to a point because nobody really knows how it works. Even though we've had 40 years of experience of this, the science is still in its infancy, so to speak. So we know some things, but we don't know them 100%. Uh, but it's a work in progress, and the research on mindfulness uh, is growing exponentially, and so is the funding for it in scientific circles. So I think there's a lot of promise that we will understand what some of us talk, think, uh, speak of as the mechanisms by which mindfulness causes the various kinds of effects, health effects that we're seeing psychologically and physically. We'll know more about that, you know, uh, down the road. But to, to just say that um, the body itself evolved as a self-healing uh, organism system so that if you cut yourself, for instance, there are all sorts of molecular processes that wind up uh, healing that cut. Mm -hmm. uh, it's better if it doesn't get infected, so you have to take care of it in a number of different ways, and, and if it does get infected, then it's nice to have you know, antibiotics and antiseptics and so forth that can help protect it. Uh, but, uh, you know, the same for bones breaking, you know, wound healing of all kinds, that the body has its own mechanisms for doing this, and it's actually uh, extremely sophisticated at doing that. But now that we have moved into these lifestyles that you were, you know, the modern lifestyle where we're distracting ourselves all the time, in a certain way, uh, we're eating without awareness of what we're putting into our bodies, we're driving through our moments, you know, to get to better moments without any awareness of the present moment, which is the only one we're alive in. We're under huge amounts of stress to get things done or to get to wherever we're getting on time. We're completely inundated with information and, you know, TMI, too much information <laughs> on virtually every subject. You can get lost for hours surfing the web and not even know what you're doing. So the, the, and, of course, we have supercomputers in our pockets that are completely interconnected with everything. So in a sense, we have infinite opportunities for self-distraction, and we're losing touch with that deep interior capacity for healing, for well-being, for knowing who we are, and then guiding our own life as opposed to it being an automatic reaction to what everybody else thinks on social media and things like that. They give us various kinds of dopamine hits in the brain whenever you, you feel like, oh, people like what I posted and things like that. And so you wind up easily getting seduced into wasting enormous amounts of time uh, 
drifting away from who you actually are. And sometimes really. people will think, though, that the the escape that they're getting from, you know, by going to Facebook, by, you know, playing their games, whatever it is, they feel like those escapes are the stress relief. How How is it yeah. more beneficial to stay in the moment, even if that moment isn't one that you particularly want to be in? Yeah, well, that's that's the key question, and uh, because and the answer is that distraction only uh, satisfies up to a point. When it becomes your your default mode or your go-to mode, uh, then it's uh, it, it actually compounds the stress and the problem. And people did a very interesting study years ago on. Um, uh, with regular people, not chronic pain patients, but looking at pain and the effects of distraction rather than paying attention to the sensations, uh, when you stick your arm, which has a tourniquet above the elbow, so no blood flow in the lower arm where it's really uh, con uh, constricted, and you put your arm into a bucket of ice water, uh, right up to the elbow, and you see how long you can stand it. And the answer is you won't be able to stand it for very long. And people use different kinds of strategies. So you can teach people, well, to self-distract and think about anything you want that's not your arm in the ice bucket uh, <laughs> and how hard and how, you know, it's killing you. Just distract yourself as much as possible uh, versus Pay attention to the actual sensations in your hand, in your arm, moment by moment by moment, and see what happens. And it turns out in this study, and I think many others that corroborated it, that early on the distraction is great. You know, you sort of, um, it works better than paying attention to it. Uh, but the longer your arm stays in, which is kind of like a model for chronicity, then the, the, the more the distraction doesn't actually help. And it just becomes, uh, it's not, doesn't work. It's not workable. Whereas attending to it, paying attention to the unwanted and the intense, you begin to understand things about your moment-by-moment -moment experience, which part of which is showing you how your actual thinking process compounds the suffering enormously. Yes, it's intensely painful, but the pain doesn't need to lead to total agony unless your mind starts to label it as total agony. And so both emotionally and cognitively, you can uncouple from the sensory dimension of pain, and that gives you a lot more uh, sense of well-being, even under circumstances of, uh, that are intensely um, sort of uh, discomforting. And that has general applications, both to physical pain and emotional pain. And it's something anybody can play around with and just, just you know, see for themselves whether when they do this completely um, um, counter, you know, uh, intuitive thing of paying attention to what they most don't want to pay attention to, that it actually gives you new degrees of capacity to be in wise relationship to it, yes, it may hurt, but in a way that it doesn't compound the hurt or intensify it more than it needs to be. Can you kind of explain then what mindfulness-based stress reduction is? Because it seems like that probably plays into this a little bit. Well, it does, because we see a lot of people with chronic pain conditions for whom the traditional medical treatments only go so far, and very often they don't go far at all. 
uh, whether that be drugs or multiple surgeries or whatever for virtually any kind of pain you can name from chronic low back pain to headache pain to, to other things. Uh, and what MBSR or mindfulness-based stress reduction is, is it's a, basically a medical clinic in the form of an eight-week-long course where you'd come to the hospital once a week for a two-and-a-half to three-hour class with maybe 25 or 30 to 40 other medical patients with a whole bunch of different kinds of diagnoses, so not everybody like yourself, whether it's heart disease or cancer or of one kind or another, but all sorts of people mixed in together. And we train people uh, to uh, cultivate mindfulness through paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally, to whatever is most important or most salient to pay attention to. And that is my operational definition of mindfulness, is that it's the awareness that arises when you, when you pay attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally. And that's a form of meditation. Meditation is really about uh, exercising our capacity to pay attention. And it's not so much about the objects of attention, like the breath sensations or the sensations in the body as a whole or whatever. You can focus on anything. But the point isn't the object of attention so much. It's the attending itself. And that turns out to be a profound sort of hidden dimension of human experience that could be recruited to um, amplify uh, experience and actually um, improve quality of life in many, many different ways. That's interesting because you, we do, we hear about the emphasis on focusing on the breath. So that's very interesting. I've never heard it presented quite that way. Yeah, and when people naively, you know, if you're just getting into meditation, and you might think, well, it's all about breathing, and if I just breathe deeply or if I breathe this way or that way, I'll be a little more calm. And that's true, you will, because you're already paying attention to the breath, even though mostly what you're doing is paying attention to the breath by thinking about it. But even that's powerful. But it's not about the breath itself or thinking about it. Uh, it's about the attending. And we're not taught that in school. So even to say it's about the attending, a lot of your listeners might say, well, you know that English, but what does he mean? <laughs> what does On he the mean? other hand, if you've ever been in a hospital and you've overheard the way people talk, you know, when the doctors come around to visit you if you're inpatient in the hospital, the, the, your physician is called an attending physician. When you make rounds in the hospital, when you see patients in the hospital, you're called an attending for short. And that really is a kind of root meaning of what doctoring is all about, is that you pay attention to your patients, which means you listen to them. You sort of read them non-verbally. You get in emotionally in such a way that you honor who they are as a person and not just uh, see them as their diagnosis is some particular kind of specific problem you need to fix. And this is, be, this is in some ways uh, changing the way uh, we're training doctors nowadays to be much more in touch with the patient as a person rather than the patient as a mere diagnosis that needs, you know, sort of clarification and then fixing. 
And that can change everything for both the patient and for the doctor. It does. It creates what we call a more participatory medicine, where you as the patient, no matter what you've got, are collaborating with your whole healthcare team, not just your attending physician, and uh, seeing what happens when you recruit your own interior biological evolved capacities for learning, for growing, for healing and transformation uh, as a complement to whatever your healthcare team can do for you in terms of drug, surgery, whatever. It's just a more powerful model, and it also is cheaper because it doesn't cost you anything to pay attention. Right. And that can actually, you know, the studies, we haven't talked about this yet, but among the mechanisms that are likely to be involved are, uh, you know, changes in the brain. Uh, in not just brain activity, but also brain architecture, brain structure, if you keep up the meditation practice for even the eight weeks of MBSR. Yeah, can you talk things. about that, how it starts changing, changing our brain structure? Because we think well, of it in terms of changing our perspective, but yeah. you have great insight on how it changes our brain structure. Well, nobody really understands this completely, but this is part of a newly discovered field in the past 15 or 20 years called neuroplasticity. And what we've learned is that the brain uh, is not a static organ. Uh, it's the organ of human experience, and it's continually changing itself on the basis of human experience, and especially repetitive human experience. Uh, so it's continually changing what's called its functional connectivity, the way neurons in one part of the brain talk to neurons in other parts of the brain. And, of course, the brain regulates and, in some sense, controls, you know, how you move your body, uh, how the body feels, uh, how you uh, speak, uh, how you understand what's going on with yourself. I mean, memory and, you know, learning and all these things uh, depend on our very elaborate brains, which are, of course, the most um, complex collection of matter in the known universe with uh, thousands of trillions of synaptic connections that themselves are upregulating and downregulating, changing in certain ways. So when you uh, start to pay attention in the way that you do when you cultivate mindfulness through these formal and informal meditative practices, the brain has its ear to the rail, and it's listening in a variety of different ways, and it might be regulating autonomic functions like lowering your blood pressure and include, and maybe uh, uh, you know, affecting your uh, peristaltic movements and uh, the movement of uh, food through the digestive tract. Uh, there are influences on the immune system, some regulated through the brain and some not. Uh, and also we see these structural changes uh, in regions that are involved in learning and memory, like the hippocampus, and also uh, functional connectivity between regions that have to do with perspective taking, learning, emotion regulation, attention regulation. And then there's the prefrontal cortex, which also changes both in terms of activity and in terms of uh, structure. That has to do with um, what's called uh, um, executive function, which means how we actually regulate and move our, through very complex uh, circumstances in our lives uh, making wise decisions 
uh, learning as we go, problem solving, and uh, actually uh, regulating impulses uh, that could actually create more problems rather than solving problems for us. So impulse regulation is a big part of it as well as seeing clearly what the challenges are that we face. And we only face challenges in this moment, the present moment. So it's moment by moment by moment. The brain is continually reshaping itself and moving in relationship to uh, experience. And you can affect that if you're present for it, which means showing up in your life in the only moment you ever get, which is this one. Right. And that's and what the mindfulness actually allows you to do. And it's not a doing, though. It's a being. It's actually shifting from thinking and emotions and, you know, getting things done and everything to taking a moment to just drop in and be. And then it's not about that you won't get things done, but the things that you will get done will, be get, will get done better and will get done in some sense uh, in a more uh, less stressful way because the doing will actually come out of this deep reservoir of being that's really our biological birthright. If you would like a free sketch note of this episode or previous episodes of the Live Happy Now podcast, you can go to livehappynow.com. And while you're online, let us know what you thought of this episode. Maybe some things that you took away from it or something maybe you'd like to add. We're not above taking advice from our listeners. In fact, we encourage it. Go to at livehappy on Twitter, facebook.com slash livehappy, or you can send us an email, podcast at livehappy.com. Well, for Paula Phelps, I'm J.R. Houston saying so long, and thank you for helping us to live happy.